could I use that term of a study, examination of the high priest's garments in the Old Testament, which are highly symbolic of Christ and his ministry. And at this particular moment, we're just coming to the end of talking about the, the beautiful breastplate of judgment that was on the ephod of the high priest that was studded with these wonderful precious stones. And on each stone was uh, the name of one of the tribes of the sons of Israel, of Jacob. And uh, we're getting through them well. And uh, so I want you to come tonight. We're going to do a couple more. So I want you to come to Genesis 49 and Genesis 35. And we'll read from Genesis 35 first. I'm going to read Genesis 35 and reading from verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel. And when there was but a little distance to go to Ephra, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. Now it came to pass, when she was in hard labor, that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you will have this son also. And so it was, as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Benoni. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. And then in Genesis chapter 49, uh, Jacob speaking prophetically uh, to his sons. When he comes to Dan, he said, verse 16, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way and a viper by the path. Now we're going to talk about Benjamin and Dan tonight. You guessed that by me reading that in Genesis 49. But there's other scriptures in between time which will speak of Benjamin which we'll come to presently. All right. Now, Leah had given birth to four sons, to Jacob. Leah was Jacob's first wife. And two more sons uh, through her mate. And then Baron Rachel, this time, had been barren up to this point. She had provided Jacob also with two sons, but by proxy, again, through her handmaid. And then, much later, God graciously opened up the womb of Rachel. And so she gives birth to her first natural son, Joseph. And then in chapter Genesis 30, 22 and 23, don't turn to this, so let me read it. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. So she called his name Joseph, which means he will add, and said, The Lord shall add to me another son. Now, you know that Jacob was staying with his uncle Laban, and this is how all this came about with these two wives, daughters of Laban, how he tricked them into a bigamous arrangement of marriage and how they stayed there for 20 plus years. And during all of that time, all these children were born uh, to Jacob through his two wives and through their two handmaidens. And then uh, we see here that Jacob now is time to return back to his home. And, uh, and on the way there, back to his home, 
You say, well, why did he leave home? Well, you remember he left home because he had taken his brother's birthright and Esau wanted to kill him. And his mother said, you better get out of here. You better go to the heat. Uh, gets out of Esau. You better go and stay with uh, Uncle Laban for a while. And then you can come back. Well, that while lasted over 20 years. So now he feels it's time to go back to his home and his homeland. And on the journey there, we just read it there a moment ago, uh, particularly when they had left part of the journey from Bethel to Bethlehem, to Ephrath. And just before he got to Bethlehem, lo and behold, Rachel, who was pregnant this time with her second child, she gave birth, and we saw there that she died in giving birth to her second child, Benjamin. But she calls him Benoni, son of my sorrow. And Jacob didn't like that, uh, either because he did not want to be reminded of losing his darling wife, the one that he loved above all, the one that he truly favored. Or else, perhaps, maybe he didn't want his son growing up with a name. Hey, he was the one that caused his mother's sorrow. That's why he's called Ben-Oni. And so he changed the name to Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. Now, let me just stop there at this moment and, and just say something as an aside to what I'm really talking about tonight. I've said this before, but it bears repeating for those of you who don't know this. The little prefix Ben... Ben-Oni, Benjamin. Little prefix Ben in Hebrew means son of. Son of my sorrow. Son of my right hand. The prefix Beth, B-E-T-H, Beth, for the woman means daughter of. Sorry, prefix Bath, I should say, Bath, B-A-T-H, Bath, means daughter of Bath, Sheba. Daughter of Sheba. Now, if you take the B-E, of Ben and the TH of Bath and you put the two together you get Beth B-E-T-H and Beth means house of Bethel house of God Bethlehem house of bread so the sons of God and the daughters of God make up the house of God alright have you got that well that's nothing to do with what I'm talking about but I'll throw that in for free for you okay now and so in the process, she died, and Jacob changes the name. Instead of son of my sorrow, it's now son of my right hand. The right hand is symbolic of strength. Most people are right-handed. Most people count their right hands as their strongest hand. And so, out of sorrow came strength. And God often, in our lives, can bring strength out of sorrow. God often can do this. He can turn our sorrows into strengths, our losses into gains. Our disappointments often are His appointments. doesn't seem like it at the time. But when we look back, we, sometimes we can see the hand of God in it. And God can turn us from being victims into victors. So He can. So God can take stuff that happens to us in life, very painful things oftentimes, difficult situations, crisis situations, and He can turn it around for His glory and for our good. He can turn our sorrows into strengths. And so, regardless of what we go through at times, the disappointments, the difficulties, the pains, the whatever, reversals in life, if we look to God and trust Him, very often you can see Him changing that. 
And what we thought was maybe our bitterest disappointment, out of that, sometimes we can gain our greatest strength. Now, Jacob, calling his twelfth son and final son, Benjamin, son of my right hand, that became quite prophetic. Because you remember his eleventh son, Joseph, one time was the youngest of his sons, and how that his brothers betrayed him and sold him into slavery, and then they told his dad that he had been killed by a wild beast. And of course, when his dad heard that, he was absolutely devastated. And then when Benjamin came along, it seems to be that Benjamin filled the void that had been left by Joseph. And he became very protective of little Benji. And uh, he nurtured him and was very protective of him. In fact, later on, whenever the brothers had to go cap in hand down to Egypt and ask for corn of the Egyptians, not knowing that Joseph, the one they had betrayed into Egypt, was the one they'd have to go and ask for the corn, even though they didn't recognize him at the time. And of course, you remember what Joseph did? He said, well, didn't know him at this time. He asked about their family and how many brothers they had. And he told them, and he says, uh, but the youngest one was Benjamin. He says, well, bring Benjamin here. And that wasn't what they wanted to hear. It certainly was something the dad didn't want to hear. In Genesis 42, 4, whenever they said, uh, whenever they were going down to get corn in Egypt, they, he wouldn't let Benjamin go with them. Here's what he said in Genesis 42, verse 4. Lest some calamity befall him. So in other words, with this youngest son now, who was filling the vacancy that his other youngest son, Joseph, had left in his life, this big gap in his life, this void, suddenly little Benjamin is filling that, and he wants to be ultra-protective of him. He doesn't want to lose him. And so... Whenever they go to Egypt in Genesis chapter 44, this is a very touching scene in Genesis chapter 44. And they're standing before uh, Joseph that they didn't recognize. Verse 18. Then Judah came near to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing. And do not let your anger burn against your servant, for you are like even like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age who is young. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Speaking about Benjamin. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes upon him. And we said to my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face no more. So it was, when we went up to your servant, my father, that we told him the words of my Lord. And her father said, Go back and buy us a little food. We said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we shall go down. For we may not see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. The one went out from me, and I said, Surely he is torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. 
But if you take this one also from me, and calamity befalls him, ye shall bring down my gray hair and sorrow to the grave. Now therefore, when I come to your servant my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. So your servant will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For your servant shall become surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father? Now do you know that absolutely just melted Joseph's heart? You know, all along he had been leading them along, not recognizing him. But whatever they said about the lad and how this father would be absolutely crushed and broken, it would die of a broken heart, Joseph could contain himself no longer. He just melted. In fact, he put all the, he put all the servants out and he went behind a curtain. He just cried and bawled and cried, thinking about his dear father and this lovely son. And so here is Benjamin, son of my right hand. And God has got a son too. He who is called the man of sorrows is the son of God's right hand. Amen? Isn't it interesting that in all these sons that Benjamin was the only one that Jacob ever named? Think about it. All the other sons were named by their mothers. And even Benjamin was named by his mother Benoni. But Jacob changed that. It's the only one he gave a name to. And God gave his son a name, didn't he? Listen to what it says in Matthew one twenty one, And she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means Savior. Luke one thirty. Then the angel said unto her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Paul sums it up beautifully in Philippians 2 and 9, where he says, God has given him a name that is above every name. Amen. Of things in heaven, of things in earth, of things under the earth. And at that name, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. God has given His Son a wonderful, powerful, and precious name. A name that is on the lips of every believer. And a name that is blasphemed to the ends of the earth. must be wonderful when the Son of God sits at the Father's right hand and he hears millions and millions and millions and millions of believers all over the world speaking his name. After 2,000 years, multitudes, untold millions, speak the name of Jesus and glorify it and give him praise. Amen. So let's look at these prophetic words 
by Jacob given to Benjamin, his youngest son. Remember now, he's not a little boy now, he's a young man, mature young man, standing around the bedside. And old Jacob's dying and he wants to impart a blessing. Here's what he says. Genesis 49, 27. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour his prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. That's a kind of a strange, cryptic sentence, isn't it? Remember, he's speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's speaking prophetically. He's not just saying something out of the top of his head. This is coming from the Holy Spirit through him, but it sounds rather cryptic. So we need to unpack it a little bit. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. Now, it's a little bit hard for us because mentally we're thinking, this is the youngest son. And we're thinking of him a little younger than what he really is at this point, but he is the youngest son. We're also thinking that he's been brought up in a home where the father has been probably ultra-protective of him. And so you might get the impression that he'd kind of be a little bit soft, a little bit mollycoddled. And whether he was mollycoddled or not, but his nature was not like that at all. And in fact, if you study the history of the tribe of Benjamin, they were far from that. They were like a ravenous wolf, and in the morning devoured their prey, and at night divided the spoil. According to the allotment of their tribal land, it was located between the two very large tracts of Judah and Ephraim. So they were the kind of meat between the sandwich, as it were. And from their historical records of the tribes, when you look at Benjamin, when you look at it historically, from their mourning historically, to their evening historically. When you look at that period of time, you'll see that they were a warring tribe. They were fighters. And although they were much smaller than their neighbors, yet they were fierce in battle. Their ferocity as fighters was legendary. So they weren't mamsy-pamsy, weren't wimps. This was a tribe of fighters, ferocious like wolves, like a pack of wolves tearing apart the prey when it catches it and dividing the spoil. One of their most famous ones was Ehud. Ehud in Judges 3 was a, a Benjamite. He was the second judge. And this is a time when the Moabites were oppressing them for some 18 years, I believe it was. And the king that sat on the throne of Moab was called Eglon. And he was a, an enormous man. He was terribly obese. I mean, he was just monstrous. And, but he was a monster in more ways than that. He was a cruel tyrant. And one man had enough. And one man stood up, a Benjamite. And he went in on to Eglon. Under the pretext of paying tribute paying taxes. And he went in 
And of course, if you go in to see the king, you'd have to be frisked in case you had any weapons on you. Now, most people were right-handed. And so most right-handed people would have carried a dagger or a sword on the left-hand side, which would be convenient for them to whip it out. And so, in those days, that would be the way. So whenever he went in, they searched him, but they only searched his left-hand side, thinking that if he had any weapon, that's what it would be. But what they didn't know, he was left-handed. <laughs> it's interesting that son of my right hand, it's interesting that tribe had 700 left-handed people who the Bible says were experts in the slingshot who could hit a target at a hair's breadth. So he's left-handed, so his, his sword or dagger, which was a cubit long, a cubit's from your elbow to the tip of your finger, so it's about 18, 21 inches. Right? So he had it strapped to his right leg because he'd be left-handed. They never searched that. Now, he took a big risk. He was very, very brave because if they had of then his life would have been over right there and then. And so he had ended the king, paid his tribute, He's about to leave. He says, oh, by the way, king, I have a message from God for you. <laughs> the king was fascinated, and he put everybody out. He says, come close. Tell me what it is. So he got up close, and he got up close. He put his left hand down. He whipped out that big dagger, and he just stuck it in his big belly. You can read that. In fact, it went right in above the very hilt that said he was so fat. It's a bit crude, that, isn't it? It's a good job you're not getting your tea after. It's good job this wasn't the morning service and you're going to have your lunch. Eh? <laughs> you can read that in Judges chapter 3. And he killed him. And then he went out. After he killed him, he went out and he locked the door behind him and just sauntered on out as brave as you like and out and away. And the king's servants came and the door was locked. The Bible says they thought he was refreshing himself. In other words, they thought he had gone to the loo. That's what that means, by the way. So they waited and waited and waited. Then after a while, kept knocking, but there was no sign of the king. They burst down the door, and there he was lying there, dead as a dodo. And by that time, Ahab went out and had roused the troops and had gotten, did great damage to the Moabites and delivered the children of Israel from the Moabites. And so these Benjamites were... Strong, fighters, fierce. King Saul was a Benjamite. And if you read King Saul and what he did to his enemies when he got them, not very pleasant reading. Like a wolf tearing apart its prey. Jonathan, Saul's son, was a Benjamite. Extremely brave soldier, great warrior. Mordecai and Esther were Benjamites also. So there were some heroes come out of this tribe. No wimps. No wishy-washy people. Son of my right hand. Strong. Perhaps the most famous of all the Benjamites in the whole Bible was Saul of Tarsus. He who had become the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 11 and Philippians 3, 5 and both those scriptures for the sake of time I'll not read them but in there when he's telling a little bit of his history he says I was a Benjamite of the Benjamites <laughs> full-blooded died in the world Benjamite 
And in the morning of his life, he was like a wolf, ferocious against his prey, which was the church. Isn't that so? Galatians 1.13, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. This was in the morning of his life. Acts 22.4, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering both men and women into prisons. Wolf-like, ruthless. In Acts 26, 9 and 10, he's given testimony. He says, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In Acts 1, sorry, Acts 9, 1 and 2. Then Saul, still breathing out threats and slaughter <laughs> against the disciples of the Lord. Breathing out threats and slaughter. That's wolf-like, isn't it? He was a true Benjamite, this man. But that was in his morning. But what was he like in the evening of his life? Well, this ravenous wolf, <laughs> you remember in the road to Damascus he met Christ and suddenly he's changed forever. And in the evening of his life, he's an entirely different person, isn't he? He's an entirely different person. The persecutor becomes the preacher. The slayer becomes the soul winner. The destroyer of believers becomes the discipler of believers. Old Matthew Henry puts it this way. Blessed Paul was of the, this tribe, and he did in the morning of his day devour the prey as a persecutor, but in the evening he divided the spoil as a preacher. <laughs> and so... There's lots of men and women and in the morning of their day before they come to Christ they're fierce wicked cruel blasphemers but when they meet Christ then the evening of their day becomes entirely different. We talked about Paul the other week. Eh? All the energy and drive that persecuted the church, suddenly all the energy and drive is building up the church. What a legacy he left for the church of Christ. Two-thirds of the New Testament are written by Apostle Paul. This Benjamite. In the evening of his life, he divided the spoil. We owe Paul a great deal, do we not? All the great doctrines of the New Testament, we owe them to Paul. We never would have understood them. But Paul got along with the Lord. And the Lord revealed it to him by revelation. And he left it for us to read and to see and to live by. What a wonderful legacy. So there's Benjamin. But what about Dan? Dan's stone on the breastplate was 
the beryl. It was the tenth stone. Now, we read there about Dan's birth, but in Genesis 49, verse 16, let's read that again. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way and a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider shall fall backward. I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider shall fall backward. I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. In Genesis 36, Rachel said, God has judged my case, and he has heard my voice and has given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Dan simply means judged. That's what it means. Now she may have meant here that God at last had judged her case and had given her justice. And so, for whatever reason, she called him Dan, which means a judge. Samson, one of the great judges in Israel, was a Danite. In Judges 13, we see that the Danites, by the way, they're bordered, bordered the Philistines. And the Philistines were a race of people that were fierce also, who were, had the best of the weapons of their day. They were highly armed, armed to the teeth. And they were raiders. They would live in their own land, but they'd come into the surrounding lands and raid and kill and pillage and destroy and go back to their own land. Highly feared, especially against the people of God. And so they constantly raided the Danites' land. And in the midst of that time, God raised up Samson to be the deliverer of his people from their hand. We'll not go into the story of Samson. You know it fairly well. But I want you to notice the words that Jacob spoke to Dan. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Now Dan and Asher, Gad and Naphtali were the sons of the two maids. Weren't the sons of the two wives. And in fact they're the sons of the two concubines. And so, maybe Jacob, through the Holy Spirit, is letting them know, letting Dan know, that he was still counting them as his sons. And in fact, they got their names upon the breastplate, close to the heart of the high priest. And so, the point I want to make in this is that once you are born again, once God counts you as His Son, by the way, that goes for you ladies too. Because the ladies as well as the gents are the sons of God. 
the gents as well as the ladies are the bride of Christ. All right, so if you have any trouble with sexism, forget it. <laughs> We're included in both. And so, maybe the Holy Spirit was letting them know here that they were included as sons, irregardless of how they were born. Once we are born again of the Spirit of God, we are the sons of God. So your natural birth, whatever your status was in your natural birth, your upbringing, your status in society, it means nothing in the light of being born again and being a son of God. Amen? So once you are born again, it matters not how you were born. Lots of people were born illegitimately. Lots of people has no idea in the world who their father or mother was and will never know. But if they're born again, it makes not one jot of difference. They're the sons of God, nevertheless. And they're close to God's heart. Amen? That's the wonderful thing about the gospel. No matter what your background is, no matter what your social status is, no matter what your color is, your race is, your sex is, your gender, it makes not a jot of difference. We're all one in Christ. There's neither male nor female. There's neither slave nor free. We're all one in Christ Jesus. Amen. So you don't need to feel inferior to anyone. You're a child of the living God. So hold your head high. Say, I'm a child of God. Dan shall be a serpent by the way and a viper by the path. Now you know, of course, that the serpent, often, more often than not, is symbolic in the Bible of something that is satanic and evil. Some evil satanic influence. The serpent in the garden is a classic example, isn't it? How that the devil comes in the form of a serpent and does all of that damage in the garden with the first parents, Adam and Eve. Revelation 12 and 9 says, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. Now Jacob was right here. Remember, he's speaking prophetically. He's not just thinking this up as he goes along. He's not looking at them and looking at their temperaments and their, their personalities and making something out of that. No, he's speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And some things of what he said was far-reaching and of great significance. And so he was right. Because the history of Dan shows that it was easily influenced and was terribly, deeply influenced by satanic influence. You say, how so? Well, in Judges chapter 18, there's a very revealing chapter about the tribe of Dan. They hadn't been a lot at their land yet. They were living here and there a little bit, and they get tired of that, and so they wanted to get a plot of land, somewhere they could settle and be at peace. And so they sent out five spies, as it were, to spy out the land and see where they could get, where they could settle. So these five went out. They went as far as Mount Hermon, went as far up as what today would almost be Lebanon. And on the way there, in the mountains of Ephraim, they dropped into a house of a man called Micah. Uh, Micah, remember this is the time when the book of Judges says that there was no king in Israel and the people did that which was right in their own eyes. 
And so they dropped into the house of Micah. And when they were there refreshing themselves, lo and behold, there was a young man there, a Levite. A Levite. Who had an ephod. Levite was a priestly tribe. Had an ephod. And not only had he an ephod, but Micah had all kinds of gods in his house made of silver and gold, uh, molded idols. And this young Levite was the priest of Micah and his household, would you believe? He had his own personal Levite priest with an ephod plus all these images of other gods. <laughs> that can't be right, sure it can't. No. And so these five men were quite impressed by that. And they said to the young Levite, they said, Hey, pray unto God for us and see if our, if our journey is going to be okay. And he says, Go on your way. The presence of God's with you. So they went. And they found a little, little town called Laish. And it was unprotected. Peaceful, sleepy little town. They thought, This is a good spot. This would be easy to take. And so they decided there and then, this is the place. They came back to headquarters. They told the leaders, they says, God's with us. We're going to take this. And so they get 600 of their greatest warriors. And they went back up on the journey again to take this little sleepy town. And on the way there, they were told about this Levite in the house of Micah. So they swung past the house of Micah and they said to the Levite, Hey, what do you think? Is it better for you to be a Levite, to be a personal priest to one man in his household, or to be our priest, to be priest of the whole tribe? The young man thought about that for 10 seconds and thought, I think I'll go with you lot. <laughs> that sounds like an upgrade to me. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. But not only did he go with them, but he took his ephod, which was a godly thing, by the way, and he took the other gods with him. Took Micah's gods, all these idols, all his stuff took them too. Micah follows them out, sees his stuff stolen. He goes and he gets there and there's 600 men waiting on him. You know what they said? Tell him, and said, hey, I'm perfect. Clear off. There's angry men here. They'll kill you. So go, just go home. Say nothing. Well, seeing you put it that way, when he saw 600 angry men, he surely did go home. And so they went. And they took that little village and they defeated it easily and they changed its name and they called it Dan. And they moved in there, lock, stop, and barrel with their false idols, with their false gods. And they set those idols up and they began to worship them. And that was the start. That was the start. One Levite, five men, then 600 men, then a whole tribe. All of Dan was worshiping. These idols. 200 years later, the kingdom now, Solomon dies. His son, Rehoboam, is ruling in his stead. And Jeroboam of Nebat, son of Nebat, he comes against him. Kingdoms divided. Ten kingdoms in the north, ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. And Jeroboam now, He's in control of the northern tribes and he's scared 
that the northern tribes will start going down to Jerusalem, the southern tribes to worship God there. So you know what he does? He sets up golden idols and says, this is your God. This is what brought you out of Egypt. Worship this. And he set up his idol, these golden idols. He set one up in Bethel, which is the house of God. And he set one up in Dan. And now the whole nation is worshiping false gods. That satanic influence that started with one man then went to one tribe is now spread throughout the whole nation. How did that affect Israel? Terribly. You know, every time that Israel into idolatry, they left themselves open to every, every work of the enemy. And time and time and time again, they came oppressed by their enemies. Time and time again. Until somebody had enough. Until one man or one woman like Samson or Deborah, whoever, stood up and said, enough is enough. And they cried unto God. And God said, I'll deliver you from them. And God would deliver them from them. And whether it was 20 years or 40 years, then the cycle would proceed again. Back into idolatry. And it started with Dan. It started with Dan. Dan shall be a serpent by the way and a viper by the path. Isn't it interesting in Revelation chapter 7 where it talks about the 144,000 Jews from the tribes of Israel that were sealed. Isn't it interesting that Dan is not mentioned? Could that be because of his occultic practices? Very possibly. It certainly reduced Dan greatly in the sight of God. says that he's a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider shall fall backwards. Just a small nip of the serpent on the horse's heel will cause it to rear up and throw off the rider. Just that one Levite, that one young man who worshipped other gods, affected that one tribe and threw them backwards off their horse. And then affected all of Israel and threw it backward off its horse. What does the Bible say? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Hmm? It's the little foxes that spoils the vines. James said in his little letter, he says, A little spark sets a whole forest on fire. Speaking about the tongue. Doesn't take much, sure it doesn't. And Satan knows how to nip our heels. He knows how to nip our heels and throw us off our horse. So we've got to be not be ignorant of his devices. Knows how to throw us backwards. Says they fell backwards. Backsliding. Best definition of backsliding you'll ever hear is backsliding is a result of slack abiding. 
Andrew Murray said that. Great preacher of old. Backsliding is a result of slack abiding. We're to abide in Christ. And if we're slack in our abiding, we'll backslide. <laughs> the enemy will come in and just nip us in the heel. Throw us backwards. And before you know it, you're not walking the way you used to walk. You're not living the way you used to live. You're not reading, praying, coming to the house of God. It just it throws you backwards, doesn't it? But thank God we can get up again and go forward. Because <laughs> the Lord can restore us. Little things that we allow, feeling we can handle them, easy to control. Before you know it, they're controlling us. They're controlling us. And then just to finish off tonight, having said all of that, suddenly he said something that just almost seems out of place here. He says, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. Someone said maybe when he was thinking about the serpent and the heel, maybe he was thinking about Genesis 3.15. Speaking of the devil coming against Christ, he shall bruise your heel, but you shall bruise his head. The word salvation in Hebrew is Yeshua. Yeshua. Messianic Jews call Jesus Yeshua. Messiah. The Jews Targum, which was the Aramaic translation of the Bible. It says that when Jacob said, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord, it paraphrases it this way. My soul waiteth not for the deliverance of Gideon, for it is only temporal, nor for the deliverance of Samson, for it is transient, but for the redemption by the Messiah, son of David, which is thy word thou hast promised, said to thy people Israel. For this, thy salvation, Yeshua, my soul waiteth. Speaking under the unction of the Holy Spirit, particularly thinking of the failure of the tribe of Dan and what it would lead Israel into. He says, I can't count on him. I can only count on Messiah. So my soul is waiting and longing for Messiah to come. <laughs> How we need Messiah to come, amen? Now he has come in our lives, Christ. But how we need him to come back again. How we need him to return. And so... Jacob is going through the sons one by one by one by one, speaking prophetically, speaking things that would happen after he was gone, 
long after he was gone. In fact, speaking of things that will happen long after you and I are gone. Because that's the prophetic often, particularly in the Old Testament. I've often told you that prophets in the Old Testament, they were as much as they were foretellers, they were forth-tellers. They spoke forth as well as foretelling the future. They spoke forth. And lots of times he's speaking forth to these sons. And sometimes they're being rebuked. But other times he's foretelling and he's talking about what would happen away down the pipeline in history. And do you know what? If you read through all of those tribes, you'll see every single thing he said was true because it came from the heart of God. And if everything he said was true, and if all of that has already happened, what he said would happen, and we see it in the Bible has happened, then we can also say what hasn't happened yet will happen. Huh. So we're almost finished. Just a couple more to go. And then we shall finish, finally, by looking at that fine bonnet and that golden mitre around the high priest's head. Amen? And we'll see what that says. Are you understanding this? Because sometimes I look down and I think I've lost you in the midst of it. Maybe sometimes I do lose you a little bit in the midst of it. Maybe your brain is a bit frazzled somewhere in the middle of that. But you'll get bits of it. Amen. You'll not probably remember it all in the morning. Try to remember it for Tuesday night in the cell group, please. And then we'll have a good talk about that. Amen.